John, chapter 15, verse 17, through chapter 16, verse 15, verses 17 through 21. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Burkett notes, Observe here with what frequency and importunity our Lord inculcates and presses the duty of mutual love upon his disciples. I command you to love one another. It denotes the great importance of the duty and the great averseness and backwardness of our hearts to performance of it. And if we consider the disciples as apostles and ministers of the gospel, it intimates to us the necessity of mutual love amongst the dispensers of the gospel, as conducing exceedingly to the welfare and benefit of the church of God, over which he hath set them. Observe, too, the argument which our Savior makes use of to press his disciples in general, and his ministers and ambassadors in particular, to love each other, and that is, because the world would certainly hate them. Learn hence that the world's hatred of the members and ministers of Christ is, and ought to be, esteemed by them a strong argument to excite and persuade them to love one another. For this is subjoined as an argument to press mutual love, that we are sure to meet with the world's hatred. Observe three, the several arguments by way of encouragement which Christ propounds to comfort his members and ministers against the world's hatred. The first argument is taken from his own lot and usage. When here in the world, he met with the very same before them. The world hated me before it hated you. Learn hence that hatred and persecution from the world need not seem hard to the saints if they consider what stock Christ had before them upon him. He is a prime object of the world's hatred, and they who hate him much do hate his members more because of their likeness to him and resemblance of him. A second argument of the comfort under the world's hatred is this that it will be evidence they are not of the world, but are chosen out of the world. Verse 19, Because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore the world hateth you. Learn hence, 1. That the children of God, though in the world, yet are not of the world. They have not the spirit of the world in them, nor is the conversation of the world led by them. 2. The difference betwixt them that are of the world and those that are chosen out of the world is of God's making. I have chosen you out of the world. 3. That such Christians are separated from the world in judgment, affection, and practice must for that reason expect to be hated and persecuted by the world. Because ye are not of the world, therefore the world hates you. The third argument for consolation and support under the world's hatred is taken from our relation to Christ as servant to a master. Verse 23, remember that the servant is not greater than his Lord. As if Christ had said, is it equal that you should expect better treatment than myself, either as to your person or ministry, or that you should expect the world should better receive your doctrine than it did mine before you? Learn hence that neither the members nor ministers of Christ can nor ought to expect better entertainment in and from the world 
than their master found before them. The servant is not above his master, nor greater than his lord. A fourth argument to support them under the burden of the world's hatred is taken from the goodness of the cause for which they were to suffer, namely, for Christ's namesake. Verse 21. All these things they will do unto you for my name's sake. Learn hence that it is the duty of all, but especially the ministers of Christ, to own the name of Christ, to stand up in defense of his name and truth, his glory and honor, what opposition soever they meet with for the same. Learn, too, that the great quarrel of the church against the disciples of Christ is for the name of Christ. Whatever may be pretended, this is the ground of the quarrel. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. Burkett notes, These words are not to be understood absolutely, but comparatively, as if Christ had said, Had I not come amongst them in my incarnation and preached personally to them the doctrine of salvation and confirmed that doctrine by miraculous operations, they might have pleaded ignorance in some measure, and they had not had sin. That is, they had not had the sin of unbelief and gospel contempt to answer for, or had not had so great a measure of any kind of sin to answer for as now they have, but would have had more to say in excuse or for a cover for their sin than they now can. But now they have no cloak for their sin. That is, they are totally inexcusable and have not the least color or pretense for their obstinate unbelief. Learn hence, one, that sins of ignorance are, as it were, no sins compared with sins committed against light and knowledge. Two, that sins committed against gospel light are of a heinous nature and aggregated guilt as being committed against the very remedy. Three, that the gospel, where it is plainly preached, doth take away all pretense and excuse from sinners. Now they have no cloak for their sin. Verses 23 through 25. And he that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, they had not had sin. But now they have both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass, that the world might be fulfilled, that it was written in their law, they hated me without a cause. Burkett notes, These words declare the heinous nature of the Pharisees' sin in hating and persecuting Christ, who had done before their eyes such works as no man besides him or before him ever did, he acting by his own power. Peter healed the lame man, Acts 3, but it was in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. But Christ healed the sick and raised the dead in his own name, and by a special word of command, I say unto thee, Arise. Yet did the Pharisee hate him and his father, according to the prediction, Psalm thirty-five nineteen. They hated me without a cause which being spoken of David in a type, received a more imminent accomplishment in Christ, the son of David. Learn thence, one, that let men pretend to never so much holiness or respect to God, yet if they hate Christ and despise his gospel, they are haters of God, who is one in essence and nature with his son. He that hateth me hateth my father also. Learn, too, that no miracles wrought by mortal men were ever comparable to the miracles by Christ, the Son of God. He did surpass them all in number, kind, and manner of doing them, by his own authority in his own name, and not as others, who obtain their power by prayer from God. I have done amongst them the works which none other man did. <laughs>
Learn three, that Christ, having confirmed his doctrine by such unparalleled miracles as the world was never before acquainted with, doth aggravate the sin of those that are haters of his person, despisers of his doctrine, and reproachers of his miracles, it being just with God when men obstinately will shut their eyes and will not see, judicially to close their eyes and say they shall not see. Verse 26. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye shall also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. Burkett notes, Here our Holy Lord comforts himself that, though he had laid them under many aspersions and scandals from the world, yet all these should be done away by the coming of the Holy Spirit, who should testify of him and make his person and doctrine to be acknowledged in the world, and that they themselves should bear witness of him who had been with him from the beginning, that is, since he first began to exercise his prophetic office. Observe here, one, that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Two, that the Holy Ghost proceedeth from the Father and the Son. Here the Son is said to send him, and as to the Father, he is said to proceed from him. If the Holy Ghost doth not proceed from the Son, why is he called the Spirit of the Son? Galatians 6, 6. Why is he here called to be sent by the Son, the Comforter whom I will send unto you from the Father? And if the Spirit doth not proceed from the Son, what personal relation can we conceive betwixt the Son and the Spirit? Observe 3, that it is the highest dignity and honor of the apostles and ministers of Christ, that the Spirit beareth no testimony unto Christ, but with and according to the testimony given by them. For here it is conjoined, He shall testify of me, and ye shall also bear witness, who have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16, verses 1-4 through 4. These things have I spoken unto you, that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. Burkett notes, In the close of the foregoing chapter, our blessed Savior had acquainted his disciples with the hatred and hard usage they were like to meet with in the world. And here he intimates to them the reason why he did so much insist upon that subject. Namely, not to sadden their hearts and grieve their spirits before their suffering came, but that they might not be offended, discouraged or scandalized at them when they came, but prepared for them and armed against them. Hence learn, one, that all afflictions, but especially persecutions, are so searching and trying that the best of Christians have need to be guarded against them, that they may not be offended at them. 2. That it was the great design of Christ to arm his disciples against the scandal of the cross, lest, stumbling at what they expected not, they should fall from the profession of Christianity. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. Observe, too, how our Savior instances in two particular sorts and kinds of suffering which his disciples were to expect in the world and from the world, namely excommunication and martyrdom. Verse 2. They shall put you out of the synagogues, that is, exclude them from all their assemblies, both civil and religious, 
and shall not only think it lawful, but a very acceptable service to God to put them to death. Whosoever killeth you will think that he doth God's service. Observe 3. How Christ discovers in his dear disciples the cause and ground of the world's hatred against them and enmity towards them, namely, the ignorance of the Father and of himself. Verse 3. These things will they do, because they have not known the Father nor me. From whence we may learn that all the persecutions of the saints do speak in persecutors and ignorance both of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. All persecutions spring from ignorance as well as from malice. And men who continue ignorant of God and Christ are in danger of turning persecutors if they have a temptation to it. Observe 4. How our Lord again forewarns his disciples of their approaching sufferings to the intent that they might remember that he had foretold them of them and would not fail to support them under them. He had often told them in general of persecutions and troubles which they must expect to meet with, but did not, till now, intimate the times and degrees of those sufferings with respect to their weakness. And because whilst he was with them, he himself bore the brunt of all the world's raging falling upon him, letting them alone. But after his ascension, when the malice of Satan and wicked men could not reach him, then did the storm fall upon them. Learn hence, one, that Christ is so tender of his disciples' weakness that he will not put them upon the hardships of suffering till they be trained and prepared for them. Two, that it may encourage the saints in and under their sufferings that Christ himself is the great object of the persecutor's malice, and they only for his sake. For, could they reach him, they would not concern themselves with them. Learn, three, that the saints of God, after long exemption and freedom from sufferings, must expect that storms will arise, clouds gather thick, and trials come on apace, and their being under one trial will not hide or shelter them from another. Verses 5 and 6. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you asketh me whither I goest, because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Burkett notes. Observe here how our Savior again intimates to his disciples his speedy departure from them, and reproves them for being so saddened at it and concerned for it, without considering the end and design of it, and the benefit and advantage they were to receive by it. Here we see how the disciples' thoughts were wholly taken up about themselves, what they should do for want of Christ's bodily presence, without being instant with him to know whither he was going and what benefit he should reap, and they might expect from his departure. Learn hence, that Christ's disciples ought not so much to have lamented the loss of his bodily presence as to have rejoiced in his glorious exaltation and in their advantages by his death, resurrection, and ascension. None of you asketh me, Whither goest thou? But sorrow has filled your heart. Verse 7 Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Burkett notes, In these words, our Savior urges his disciples to submit to his departure as that which would make way for his sending the Comforter to them, which, he assures them, would be of more advantage to them than his own stay and continuance among them. Learn hence that the presence of the Holy Spirit with us is a greater comfort and advantage to us than the presence of Christ in the flesh amongst us. Christ's bodily presence was comfortable, but the Spirit is more intimately a comforter than Christ in his fleshly presence. 
because the Spirit can comfort all believers at once, in all places. But Christ's bodily presence can comfort but few, and that in one place only at once. Christ did converse with his disciples outwardly, but the Spirit possessed himself of their hearts inwardly. Now, for the Spirit to dwell in us is more advantageous than to have Christ dwell in the flesh amongst us. The benefit of Christ's conversation was great, but the advantage of the Spirit's renovation and holy inspiration is much greater. The one encourages and incites us to be holy, but the other quickens and enables us to be holy. Therefore, well might Christ say, it is expedient or highly necessary and advantageous to you that I go away. He subjoins with a reason. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Whence we learn that Christ's ascension was indispensably necessary in order to the Spirit's mission. The Spirit could not have descended if Christ had not first ascended. The Spirit could not come but by the gifts and mission of the Mediator. Now sending of the Spirit, being a part of Christ's royalty as Mediator, it was not convenient that the Spirit should be sent till Christ was crowned and set upon his throne in his kingdom. Then the Spirit was to make application to us of the redemption purchased for us. Verses 8 through 11. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. Burkett notes, In these and the following verses, our Savior acquaints his disciples with the advantages that were redound by the coming of the Comforter. First, the advantage to the world. Secondly, to the apostles. And thirdly, to himself. To the world, one, he shall convince them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, that is, their sinful state and nature, of the large extent of sin, and particularly of the sin of unbelief. Learn hence, one, that the Spirit of God is the author of conviction of sin, and that all convictions of sin do either immediately or immediately flow from him. Two, that unbelief is a sin of the greatest malignity against Christ and of the greatest danger to a Christian soul. He shall convince the world of sin because they believe not on me. Secondly, of righteousness, that is, of the insufficiency of all human righteousness and of the necessity of the righteousness of a mediator, by which alone we are to expect acceptance with God, or of a complete and perfect righteousness in me, imputable to sinners for their perfect justification, and that it is so appears because I go to the Father and ye see me no more. As if Christ had said, Hereby ye may be satisfied that by my active and passive obedience I have fully satisfied my Father's justice for you, and you shall never be charged or condemned, because when I go to heaven I shall abide there in glory with my Father and never be sent back again. Ye shall see me no more, as I must have been, if anything had been omitted by me. Note farther that none are convinced of righteousness who are not first convinced of sin. None will come to Christ by faith till conviction of sin have awakened and distressed them. Thirdly, of judgment. That is, the Spirit shall convince the world that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, that he had power to judge Satan, the prince of the world, and that he did by his death put down the kingdom of darkness. Learn hence, one, that Satan is a prince, who by unjust usurpation and sinner's voluntary consent 
has exercised a tyrannical power over the world. Two, that Christ by his death did judge, condemn, and overcome this mighty prince, and hath made his conquest evident to the consciences of men by the convictions of his Holy Spirit. The Spirit shall convince of judgment, that is, that Satan, the prince of this world, is judged. Verses 12 and 13. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. Burkett notes, The second benefit which our Savior declares was to be expected by the coming of the Holy Spirit relates to the apostles themselves. He shall guide you into all truth. That is, into all truth necessary for you to know in order to salvation. This is a principal text which the papists bring for their doctrine of infallibility, but groundlessly, for this promise was made to all the apostles, as well as Peter, nay, not only to the apostles, but to all their successors, yea, not the apostles only in their successors, but to all believers also, for they are led by the Spirit of God, and that into all truth too, not absolutely, but into all necessary truth. And so far as a private Christian follows the conduct and guidance of the divine spirit, he is more infallible than either pope or council, who follow the dictates and direction of their own spirits only. Verse 13 continued, For he shall not speak of himself, but whatever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. Burkett notes, That is, he shall not teach you a private doctrine, or that which is contrary to what ye have learned from me. But whatsoever you shall hear of me and receive from me, that shall he speak, and he shall show you things to come. This affords an argument to prove the Holy Spirit to be God. He that can show us things to come, he that clearly foreseeth and infallibly foretelleth what shall be, before it is, is certainly God. But this the Holy Spirit doth, he shall show you things to come. Men and devils may guess at things to come, but none can show you things to come, but he that is truly and really God. Therefore the Spirit is so. Verses 14 and 15. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and show it unto you. Burkett notes, here Christ shows the advantage which would redound to himself by the coming of the Comforter. He declares that the Spirit should glorify him by his testimony, gifts, and miracles, and shall in all things accord with him, and thereby evidence that he hath his mission from him. He shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. And all things that the Father hath are mine. Hence learn that although the union in essence among the persons in the Trinity is the same, yet the order of their subsistence and operation is distinct, the Son being from the Father, and the Holy Ghost from the Father and the Son. For all things that the Father hath are mine, and the Spirit shall take of mine, and show it unto you. Observe farther that these words afford a strong argument to prove the divinity of Christ. All things which the Father hath are mine where God challenges to himself the incommunicable attributes of God, and consequently that essence which is inseparable from them. Doth the Father know the secrets of all hearts? So doth Christ. Revelations 2.23 All the churches shall know that I am he that searcheth the reins and hearts. Is the Father eternal? So is Christ. Proverbs 8.23
I was set up from the everlasting.'"